collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Welcome to another episode of Collective Power. My guest this morning is Nancy Oriel, who is the Faculty Associate Dean for Community Engagement at the Medical Education, Community Engagement in Medical Education at Harvard Medical School. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Rita. And Nancy assured me, you don't want me to call you Dr. Nancy. Please call me Nancy. Okay. All right. <laughs> Just checking. Um, you know, there's a tendency of uh, men with PhDs and MDs getting called doctor a lot more frequently than women. And so I like to ask, because I'm one of those who generally it's like, you know, doctor, so, 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 and Rita. I get the familiarity because you're a people person and at the same time don't want to disrespect. So thank you for, uh, for letting me know what you prefer. So Nancy, I invited you and you said yes, because uh, this month we're still covering health systems. This is the last week of individual interviews. And the next week, we're going to bring back all our guests from this month. Actually, all doctors, interestingly enough, Dr. Sonia Rosen, Dr. Jill Humphreys, and Dr. Nancy Oriel. And next week, we'll kind of weave together these different perspectives that we brought together, which was like a patient perspective, social justice advocate and public health perspective, and whatever we discover today about the medical perspective. And I know you're an anesthesiologist. I can't believe I said that right. You have really a peculiar perspective, and you've created medical clinics around the world. The person who introduced me to you is a powerhouse, and so by your bio and the fact that she introduced you, I assume you're a powerhouse as well. And I'm really excited to be with you today. To start, so we're looking at health systems, and you said yes because you're passionate about health systems. So I'm curious, just to give us a little bit of kind of flavor of who you are, tell us a little bit kind of a, a personal story about yourself that has us discover how you became passionate about systems and health systems in particular. That's actually a, a fun question. And I was thinking about this and I was realizing as with anything, it was a lot of different threads that came together. I didn't start clinics around the world. I started a mobile clinic in Boston, but then the mobile clinic in Boston, we created a program to help mobile clinics around the country do what they're doing, you know, so share information and understand who we are and what we're doing. So um, mobile clinics is definitely an, a unique part of the healthcare system. And that's where I had a lot of my focus. So back to your question, where did it come from? So growing up, I was always fascinated by patterns. I would just notice patterns in things and, you know, possibly because my uh, uh, father did a lot of woodworking. He would always 
teach me to look at the grain of the wood and notice the pattern and how you could understand what wood it was and how you could use it according to the pattern. So I just had this fascination with patterns. At the time, there was no language, no way to understand that or even for me to think about it. Fast forward sort of 30, almost 40 years, and I had become an obstetric anesthesiologist. And as an obstetric anesthesiologist, you're there when women are having babies. A woman wants pain relief, you're there for that. But also if a woman is in acute distress and you need to do a stat cesarean section, you're there for that also. And as an anesthesiologist, I'm used to understanding you know, everything I can about my patient because I'm going to have to give them many different medications and I'm going to have to uh, sort of guide their body through the trauma of surgery and have their body handle it. So there's a nice logic and great science there. But in obstetric anesthesia, you have two patients. You have a, a mother and a baby. And the baby you can't even see. So there's, you have a second patient. And the only thing you can know about the second patient is what its heartbeat is doing. You can't even look at anything about it, just how fast is its heart going. So fetal monitoring has been used to decide how, if the baby's fine or not. And uh, when, when a woman come in and the baby is not doing well, they would know that because the fetal monitor tracing would tell them that the baby's heart rate wasn't normal. But the baby's heart rate, like everyone's heart rate, like everybody's heartbeat, every single beat is different from every other beat. So when you're actually looking at the fetal trace, what you're looking at is the individual heartbeat that the baby is making. And so we watch this squiggly line. You know, one, the first beat might be uh, the beat of 120 and the next beat might be 110 and the next beat might be 130. So it's a squiggly line. It's a pattern. And the way obstetricians decide whether or not the baby is fine is by looking at the pattern of this heart rate. Well, unfortunately, it's a very complex pattern. And just like we don't really have words to explain the grain in wood, and we don't have words to explain why one leaf looks different from another leaf, there's an issue of looking at the pattern. And unfortunately, the science of fetal monitoring isn't perfect. You know, we're used to in medicine, you measure something. You know, a person is five feet tall or they weigh 120 pounds. There's like, a, there is a single number. But when you're looking at heart rate, there is truly not a single number. There's an average. You could say, well, mostly your heart rate is 90 or 80 or something, but really it's made of all these different ones. So trying to understand that pattern happened to be at a time when there's a book called Chaos that came out in the 80s, which was spectacular. It was all about patterns. And I read that and it's like, oh, well, there is a language. There is a way to think about patterns. And that is the in systems thinking. Now I'm not an engineer. So that was not my language, but it just made sense. And that's how I got interested in how systems create patterns and you look at the patterns. That's how that helps you understand the system. So this is really fascinating. So it's like your dad teaching you about the veins of the wood and how yes. those patterns are unique to each tree and species. Had you pay attention to the patterns in a baby monitor. Like, that's incredible. There's a new, like, arena of, I don't know if it's, you would call it science or facilitation or knowledge and scholar building called regenerative practice. I'm signed up for a training that's starting in Philly. And um, in regenerative practice, what they're doing is they have a number of models and theoretical frameworks to teach humans to think more like nature. 
because it turns out the reason we're so out of sync with nature and the reason we're so harmful to nature is because we tend to not think in sync with nature. And so what you just said to me, like, is really alive because I've been thinking a lot about, like, where don't I think like nature, right? Where can I pay attention more? And uh, I love how this, like, really practical example. Thank you for that. Tell me, like, on a little bit more of a personal side, like, what had you become passionate about systems that connects to your personal experience? Besides the wood piece, right? That's like at a cognitive level, like at a heart level, what brought you to be passionate about systems? Because I felt that that's where any understanding of reality came from. I mean, how can you understand anything if you don't understand systems? And everything that I cared about proved that to be true. When I think of what is a system, I, I think of this sort of, in most cases, a complicated collection of things and that are all interrelated. And that if you do something to one part of the system, it affects the whole system because they're interrelated. That's right. And if you don't think that way, then how can you understand anything you're looking at? So as an anesthesiologist, you know, we learn the science, you give this drug and you'll get this effect. Uh, there's always this, a cause and effect that you learn. But when you read the textbook and you learn the textbook, but then you actually take care of a real patient. And, you know, the joke always is, well, this patient didn't read the textbook because people do not respond like textbooks. You know, they are systems. That's right. And when you do something to one part of the system, it has an impact on all the other parts and all the other parts are having an impact on the response the system is making to your action. And I don't think we think that way in most cases. We tend to think that if I do this, that will happen. And we're always surprised that I, you know, well, I did this yesterday. How come something different is happening now? Well, because it's a complex system and no two moments in time are the same. So it's just, I can't understand reality without thinking about systems and without reality, what is there? So how does an anesthesiologist end up creating a mobile clinic? Like, how does that work? Because generally we think of you as, you know, confined to the bowels of the surgery <laughs> rooms, right? The um, great question. I guess it is also back to the systems thinking. As an obstetric anesthetist, there's the, the proximal cause, like what made the idea jump into my head. And the idea came from taking care of patients. A woman came in and she was in, her fetus was in distress and she was unconscious. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a horrible, scary, you know, difficult moment for the family, for everyone. And as an anesthesiologist, you know, I have, you have to quickly book the person, uh, prepare the person for cesarean uh, section. And that's very hard in a person who's unconscious and you don't know their story because they just came in the ambulance. Wow. Uh, at any rate, the baby did well. The mother did well. You know, she had an emergency cesarean section. Everything went really well. But the question always was, how did this happen? So I went to see her a few days later when she regained consciousness, because I just wanted to understand how did this happen? And it was at a time in Boston where all pregnant women had health insurance. And it was a time in Boston where there's a conversation about infant mortality and everyone was saying, well, the problem was people weren't getting prenatal care, but everyone had health insurance. So I wanted to you know, talk to this woman to understand what had happened. Well, she had health insurance. She even had an obstetrician and she'd had prenatal care, 
But when she was at home having a headache, she was working poor. So she hadn't had health insurance prior to being pregnant. Okay. So when she had a headache, she didn't think she should bother her doctor with something so trivial as a headache. She didn't understand that in a pregnant woman, that is a, you know, a, a, a critical sign. So I was hearing the pundits say that the problem was prenatal care and the problem was health insurance. And I had just seen a woman in which those weren't the problem. The problem was she didn't have, she didn't have the knowledge to take care of herself the way she wanted, but she also was afraid that the system wouldn't believe her or respect her or whatever. She didn't feel entitled to just call a doctor with something so trivial as a headache. So what is a headache a critical sign of? So um, uh, what's called uh, preeclampsia or toxemia, it's a, a problem with the way the placenta and the uterus are working together, and it uh, causes a whole constellation of problems in the mother, and then one of which is the potential of having a seizure, and that is what had happened to this woman. It's often associated, so it's a very complicated- Thank you for sharing that, yeah. So what I saw was the healthcare system wasn't working to take care of this woman. I thought what she needed was a part of the system that was more inviting, part of the system that could actually give her information. So the idea of mobile clinic, back in the 60s in Cambridge, there was a mobile clinic for runaway teenagers called Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And the idea was teenagers were afraid of, the, of going for healthcare or uh, taking care of themselves, but they would go to this clinic because it wasn't scary. So the idea was maybe that would work. So that was kind of the beginning of it. As an anesthesiologist, that was completely out of my area of expertise. So I started asking all my friends who were public health experts, what did they think of it? And one of my friends, her husband was a minister, and I asked him, what do you, because the question is, would the man on the street, would the woman on the street, would this be of any use? And so that, then I worked with a woman, Cheryl Dorsey, who's now president of the Echoing Green Foundation. She was a medical student at the time. And the two of us spent basically two years talking to everyone in Boston, the churches, the barbershops, everyone. What do you think of this idea? What should we do? What should it be like? So basically, we co-designed it with the people of Boston. We worked oh, how with phenomenal. The with the neighborhood health centers. And the family van was born. So the family van is a wonderful, now 28 years old. It goes into five different neighborhoods. So it's still functioning. Oh, yes. Yeah. Roxbury, oh, Dorchester, and East Boston. Um, we open our door up. People come on with their whole life. Because the point is, the problem that the pundits were suggesting, that the problem of infant mortality was insurance and prenatal care, we found that the problem was the right to use the system, a sense of not knowing how to use the system, uh, how to get into the healthcare system. It was a whole complex constellation. It wasn't just prenatal care. It was all of the issues of poverty. And it wasn't just the mom. It was the mom and the dad and the grandma. And it was, you know, where were you living and what foods did you have? So it wasn't just nine months of prenatal care. It was your whole life. And it was your whole life from birth and your whole family. And that understanding how all that came together to cause this one crisis, that's what made me realize that the healthcare system is a system that includes where you live and mm. where you work and your family, mm. you know, and all of that put together. Sorry for interrupting you. Like, I just want to thank you for being willing to talk to people for two years before actually starting something. Like, 
I think part of why our systems are so, I don't want to put your words in your mouth, but I'm going to jump on my soapbox here for a second. Like part of why our systems are so screwed up is because we rush to do before actually thinking through the solutions and having people participate in those solutions. I completely agree. I mean, in fact, I would argue that the people who are experiencing the problem always have great ideas about how to solve the problem. They might not have all the knowledge and they certainly don't have the resources. Uh, In most places where there is a problem, there are people who are living with it and make finding solutions, not perfect solutions, but they're finding solutions. So we should always tap the brilliance of the people who survive, you know, against all odds in a situation that isn't working. Is that pretty rare in the health system that someone actually takes two years and doesn't instead like take advantage of their doctor privilege and just say, I know what needs to do. I don't know what needs to happen. Is that pretty rare? And if so, why do you think it's rare? One of the many reasons it's rare is nobody is given that freedom. So um, when someone sees a problem and they want to solve it, then you have to find people to work with you to solve it. You have to find the resources to solve it. And if it's a problem that, that the whole world has decided is here, they have to solve it fast. This was what I was doing in my spare time. There was no one telling me, figure it out now. So I was able, I had the freedom to learn learn from the people, with the people, what the solution is. So there was a freedom in that. I was working with a medical student. So the two of us were quite free. We weren't constrained by any prior information on public health. We were out there with the people trying to figure out what to do. That's a freedom. But then there's also, just as you say, people become experts in things. And when you're an expert, you do think you have all the answers. And it's depending on your inclination, you question your own expertise and you actually collaborate with people and get other smart people to help you. And so this comes to another thing that I talk about often is that in academia, we are actually trained to be experts and we're trained to like favor some solutions over others. And part of that is looking at things in isolation, right? So I love what you said about part of the health system is where you live, who you're connected to, what your family culture is. Like context is decisive. And I'm a sociologist, of course, right? So I can talk about that for hours. But the context is decisive. And when we look at bodies as machines outside of context, which is what a lot of our health providers and health systems do, then we not only are we dismissing risk factors, but we're also dismissing resilience factors, Like, it's fascinating how there are like a lot of recent studies coming out about how in terms of health, of course, white folk have like the best health in the nation due to privilege mainly, right? So where you live, where your culture, right? How you're treated. Black folk in America, unfortunately, and Native Americans have the worst. And uh, Latinos are at the center. And it's Mm. part of because like their food culture is a resilience factor, right? So Latinos tend to have like less heart disease, less a bunch of stuff. I remember heart disease right now. I don't remember the others, so I I won't speak out a term. But like we also miss resilience factors. So I love what you're saying about your mobile clinic. And I really, really am impressed that you took the two years to think. I've seen just so many people like start doing without thinking. And then, you know, it's fascinating. Like I've seen groups of 30 people 
start doing without thinking. And then like three years later, they learn the same thing that three people who were thinking without doing learned just with like million dollars of money invested. Like that's the difference, right? The hard part is not all problems allow you time to think. Mm. And so, and when that happens, I think self-awareness goes a long way and the ability to sort of critique and pivot as needed is critical. And that's not so easy. I mean, once you get a great idea, you think it's great and it's really hard to critique it and say, oh, well, maybe not. Let's try something different. Most engineers think this way. I mean, because what they're about is solving the problem. And they know that each step along the way, you question that step. And if it doesn't quite work, then you do something different. That's not necessarily the way medical science is, is taught. Well, first of all, as you said, you don't always have the time. In a medical emergency like the one we're in, right, you have to act first and then, you know, make sense later. So complexity theory talks about that, how in a state of chaos, you actually act first, then you do your sense making. But there's also, I think, like what you just described is like an act first, but it's then a reflect upon. I think oftentimes we don't actually take the time to reflect upon because in our, well, very colonial, white-centered academic world, we've been trained to just like move on to the next thing. And so oftentimes we're like fire, 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 whether it's actually a fire, we've created it like a fire. Sometimes we make up those fires too. And we're just like, you know, whether the fire is an actual fire or it's just like 5,000 emails in my email inbox, which is not a real fire, right? And so we're reacting. It's sort of like, oh, if you all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail kind of thing, right? And so we don't actually take the time to reflect. It is interesting. I think the world has changed. So back in 1992, uh, what you described, at least most of the world that I knew about, okay, but over the years, you know, this whole issue of sort of the quality improvement cycle and reflective practice, that's now in the language of what you teach in medical school, certainly what they teach in business school. And it is about have an idea, try it, reflect upon it, see the outcome, reflect upon it, and then try again. So I do think that the world has been moving in that direction, just maybe not far enough and fast enough. Yeah, I'm like an evaluator by profession. So I'd love (laughs) to say that's true. And um I just know our recommendations get dismissed a lot. Like yesterday, I was on on a call with three other evaluators and we were like ranting and raving about the way I generally put it is I get hired to give advice that people can dismiss. And I think sometimes it's the impatience in me that also interprets it that way, because sometimes you like it takes a longer time frame if you get hired for a six month or a one year evaluation. Sometimes people need to hear the recommendation for five years in a row before they actually take it. Because by the nature of what we do, sometimes we can see a little bit ahead of the curve. If I had $100 for every client who came back and said that they reread my report three years later and it finally felt true. So I think that's also kind of comes with the thing. But thank you for what you're saying in terms of there being more of an emphasis on quality improvement. I think what's challenging, and I'll say this as an evaluator, right? So as a person who does that quality improvement work, who creates those learning curves is that oftentimes we don't understand complexity and patterns Mm. because a lot of evaluators have been trained. Some of us do. I mean, I'm one of the evaluators who works that way with complexity, but a lot of us come from a linear planning model, like a management model that A plus B equals C. 
And we haven't been taught by our dads how to look at patterns and in, in wood patterns. Like, oh my God, that's so amazing, right? Like we don't have that background. A lot of us have like management backgrounds. And so um, I think the quality of reflection makes a big difference, right? Because if you're looking for accommodating for complexity, which right. it sounds like you do, I mean, you're not using that language, but it sounds like you do quite naturally, right? Yeah. Um, both naturally and by training and by curiosity. Like if you're paying attention to complexity and patterns, then the meaning we make, it's less certain. Right. And because it's less certain, a lot of people run away from it. Yes, um, absolutely. But it's actually, it's like, if I can take five patterns that are uncertain, then I may see the third, like another pattern that is at the center of the five uncertain patterns and actually find it. Right. 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 Which is not maybe true in general, but true at that particular part in time. Tell us about, like, what do you think are some misperceptions that people have around the health system, like from your perspective and where you are in the work? That's such a broad question, because when you say common people, it's like, I would say the doctors and the nurses and the patients and, you know, the CEOs, we all have an understanding that's within a framework and that as such, you can't see what's outside your personal experience too well. And so we all have misperceptions of what healthcare is like. Um, if you hear someone running a clinic talking about what clinic feels like for the patient, that might not actually be, you know, that's a misperception. It's the patient who would have to tell you what the clinic feels like. You know, the person who built it knows what they wanted it to be, but they can't tell you what it is. We all have our own experience and their own experience is not necessarily what was expected by whoever designed that particular system. It's such a, a huge question because what are the misperceptions that patients have? Well, what I particularly love is doctors are actually human. No so way. <laughs> so they've actually been patients too. And it's fascinating to hear doctors talk about their experiences as patients and how it's often sort of life-changing, not because they had the illness, but they got to see what it felt like to be on the other side. So the misperceptions, I guess, that matter is that as a doctor, you're really doing the best you can. Nobody gave up all of those years of their life to study that hard in order to hurt somebody or in order to do anything other than the very best they possibly could. But that's not necessarily how, from the patient's perspective, if something doesn't feel right or doesn't go, they would assume that they might assume malintention. Now, I'm not going to say there's not malintention sometimes. I'm not going to say there's not negligence. People are human and there's good and bad in among all of us. But the, the fact is that doctors worked hard to become a doctor. Perception people might have about the why they're doing it should be as individualized as the care we give to patients. People's motivation, and when you make assumptions about the motivation, then you misinterpret what happens and outcomes. Yeah. And so what do you think are the limitations of the system? Because I hear what you're saying about individual motivations and there are some systemic constraints that have motivations kind of be more common, right? So one of the things we just said, right? So if doctors tend to think they're experts and don't necessarily need to hear what the context of the patient is, they may not ask questions that are actually decisive. So that's like a individual misattention 
that is cultivated by an academic background. Right. right? So no, the absolutely. academic structure and the academic, yeah. And I hear what you're saying, like as, as a doctor yourself, you're like, you know, give your doctors some credit for the years of commitment they've done to this profession and that generally there is good intent, but there are just other factors at play that are not intentional and that we as patients can often interpret as malintentioned that often aren't. So your point is taken. So I'm curious, what are the limitations you see in our health system? Some of them. Uh, given what's going in the world to even begin to approach that question. I mean, well, you can also I, say, given what you see, what are the strengths? Like, I'm, I'm open to that as well. So, which I guess is kind of what I'm feeling, because what I'm aware of is the amazing strengths. The way the doctors and the nurses and the respiratory therapists and the orderlies and the way everyone within the system is putting their life at risk to take care of everyone else. I mean, that's the strength of the system. The way people are sharing people sending ventilators from one state to another, people shipping masks from one place to another. That's the strength of the system that they actually, you know, that people are coming together to solve the common problem. What is interesting is this moment in time, I think, is helping the healthcare system understand what an interrelated system it is. And I guess in the face of an emergency, there's, I guess what I hear you saying, and there's more flexibility and generosity than we've seen prior. Yeah. No, I think that's probably true. I mean, because now everybody is focused on solving the problem together. The hard part is that what we're seeing is the solution, the, you know, the, that people whose lives were not well cared for to begin with. If you lived in a community that in a difficult environment, you know, an under-resourced environment, poverty, not having a job or not having a job that's secure, being home, all of the many, many things that hurt our people's health is now just being completely unmasked. We're seeing the problems just daily and we're seeing the inequity. We're seeing the huge holes in our system and it's causing death. And so where do you see opportunities for people to leverage our collective power to shift in the face of like the gaps in our system being exposed so strongly right now, right? So like you were saying, I wrote an article a few weeks ago of like three things I love about chaos. And one of the <laughs> first things I said is a phenomenal filter, right. like um, BS doesn't fly, Right, in a chaotic right. situation the way it did before. Like I've, I've found really fascinating how, you know, the fake news thing isn't running. It doesn't have the same legs. Some people still talk about it, but it doesn't have the same legs or the dismissal of scientists, right? right. That was really rampant three years ago. The total dismissal of science as knowledge now isn't flying. Like there are medical doctors and medical researchers side of the president every time he gives a speech because it doesn't fly. Like in the face of a crisis, we value our experts and is that we can't dismiss the context now. The role of context is super clear right now. And in that, what you're sharing, right? It's exposing the wound actually, right? The wound of whole sections of our society that we don't actually take care of. Yeah, so when you say, what are we going to get out of this? Well, the fact that a meat plant closed, you know, because the people there didn't have what they needed to protect themselves is now going to affect somebody a million miles away who simply wants to go to the market and find some meat for dinner. 
so the connections are now obvious. The fact that so many of the frontline workers, the cashiers, the orderlies, the frontline workers are the ones who are being exposed. And because of a long history of systemic racism, basically, people whose health is now in jeopardy and our society depends on them. So if all of a sudden, you know, all the people bagging in the grocery store, all the cashiers, you know, all the garbage collectors, if all of a sudden they weren't here, if, you know, too many of them die because of the, the situation they live in and now they're out there face to face, that's going to impact everybody. I think we're at a moment where even if we didn't want to, we're going to start reflecting on, you know, how these things in, in, interrelate. So part of what I hear you saying, I'm just going to reformulate for a second, because I think it's a really important point, is that our class assumptions, right, have us oftentimes give more value to people who, like, have more educational privilege, right, either higher salary or more education or so on and so forth. And part of what this is exposing is how essential essentials are. Right. Right? Who oftentimes are the people who are earning the lowest wages, who are most at risk and who have the least benefits. Right. And yet our society runs on me getting my slab of steak. I'm not a steak eater, but here we go. Um, (laughs) Me going to like getting, I don't know, even know what the most prestigious whatever is. Right. But like whatever me going to the supermarket and getting my New York strip steak is heavily dependent on whether a minimum wage worker gets a face mask or not. Right. Right. Exactly. Or gloves or not. Like it's fascinating. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Like it's really having us get present to how we're all connected. And I would add from what you're saying, it's not just connection, it's dependency. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's critical. Yeah. And so when we learn about economy, the first thing that people say is like, the reason I can go to work every day is because I'm dependent and be an evaluator is because I trust that the baker is going to get up and break bread. Because if I had no trust that the baker was going to get up and bake bread, I would stay home and bake bread. Right. Right. So not only are our essentials essential, but we depend on a whole category of people who are providing, right, our basic needs, necessities, one of which is definitely food. And so this whole myth of American independence, right, like pull up your bootstraps, you got to do it alone, you have to, like, we wouldn't even be able to go to work if we were doing anything alone. We are dependent on a society that continues to roll day in and day out, right? This big assumption being uncovered now that we are all connected and dependent, interdependent, right, Um, on each other. So where do you see people being able to, like, come together and shift the health system so it is more responsive to the context, right, so that it is more responsive to needs, so it is more equitable? Well, I I wish I had the magic wand that, that gave me the answer to that. I don't know that I even have the beginnings of an answer because I feel so much we are still in the midst of the crisis. I do think that awareness and understanding matters. I think many ways about the way the healthcare system was exists. We weren't necessarily distributing our manpower in the best possible way. And I think we're seeing that now. 
um, that we're now getting many different types of health practitioners to do jobs they didn't used to do before. And what we're going to see is they're going to do it well. So if one of our many problems was maldistribution of skills, then we now realize that there are actually a lot of people who can do a lot of the different jobs that need to be done. And maybe you didn't need to have this particular degree or this particular license to actually do this job well. Mm -hmm. And so what seemed like a scarce resource maybe now has more workers capable of doing the job. So looking at the family van, the mobile clinic, a lot of the work we do in the van is work that you would have done at your doctor's office. And it's being done by community health workers and it's being done beautifully. And we're having a great outcome. I mean, what's fascinating is on the family van, as I say, it's not staffed by doctors, it's staffed by community health workers and social workers and outreach workers. And we do things like help people manage diabetes. We screen for and find people who have hypertension and help them manage it, connect them to the system and help them navigate the system and use it well, and then support them as they go, they change their behaviors. Those are things that we have the luxury to do on the family van because we have the time to do it. We're designed and set up to actually work with people that way. Well, that's not how your primary care doctor's Mm. time is set up. In the 15 minutes you have with them once a year, they couldn't possibly help you manage your blood pressure. So we've been doing this for 28 years. We knew there were other people who could actually help you manage your chronic disease better, but that's not how the world was designed. The assumption was if if this didn't happen in your doctor's office, it wasn't going to happen. And we now see that there's a lot that doesn't need to happen in your doctor's office. It doesn't need to be your doctor or your nurse who did it. There are actually many other amazing, talented folks who can help be part of the healthcare system. So I don't know if you have an answer to this question or not, but like, here we go, right? So what I hear you say is that people can be retrained, right? We can be more adaptive in terms of how healthcare professionals get trained to respond to certain contexts and situations. And health professionals sometimes can be more flexible if the systems are set up around it than the doctor's office, than the primary physician, right? So in terms of people and connecting that dot with the dot we had before, which is that a lot of health systems are done without the information and the opinion of people themselves who would benefit from it, are there any pressure points, right? Are there any places where folks can organize to support what you're saying, which is like healthcare professionals being more responsive to our specific immediate needs? Like if a group wanted to organize to like hold the health system accountable to being more equitable, right? Like what are the pressure points? Like who do we go to complain to? Like who do we organize? Like do we just like, do we need mobile clinics across the country and how do we make that happen, right? Like what are, where do we go? Like where are the points where we can actually have activism that fuels a shift? Well, that's a great question, a hard question. In fact, I know I don't have the answer to that. And just so you know, we do have mobile clinics across the country. There are at least 2,000 of them. Oh, Um, fabulous. And and in fact, I think that is an example of answer to your question. So there are 2,000 mobile clinics or more across the country. Many of them were started by the community they serve. 
their community decided there's something more we need. Having a, a hospital is awesome. Right now you want a hospital. If you break your leg, you want a hospital. If you have a medical problem that needs to be diagnosed, you want a clinic or a hospital or a doctor. But there's so many other things that are part of your health that don't need to happen there. And they don't necessarily happen on the specific corner where the building got built. So uh, communities across the country have created their own mobile clinics. So what's the process for that? So say uh, Germantown, where we are, right? I know not where you are, but where I am, right? If Germantown wanted to create a mobile clinic, like how would we create that? So if you decided today you wanted to do that, I would suggest that you go and call everybody you know in your community that connects to a lot of people. So the church, the barbershop, the local clinic, your doctor, your local medical school. So say, I have this idea. What do you think? What can we do? And then as you're building your network, you will come across people who have resources or ideas or somebody says, well, you know, I've always wanted to do that. Or someone who says, well, you know, the clinic says, well, we actually have a van around back that we haven't been using. So basically it is basic organizing, or you could be the CEO of a hospital who's just never thought of it before, who hears this interview and says, oh, that sounds like a great idea. I wonder, you know, wonder whether we could do it. Then they do the same thing. They would talk to the people they're connected to and say, what do you think of this and how can we make it happen? As long as everybody does that, what do you think of this and how can we make it happen step? Then you get a a base on which to build something. It's not just it sprung up in your head and now you're rich enough and you're going to make it happen tomorrow. And how do they get funded? Again, it's a patchwork quilt of funding. Some of them are actually parts of hospitals. Some of them are parts of churches. The family van is funded by philanthropy. We're a program of Harvard Medical School and they they provide a lot of the resources and they are one of our funders. We still raise the majority of our funding from through philanthropy. So, but every mobile clinic's different. There's some that are funded because it's by a hospital. They're health systems. Kaiser has six mobile clinics, or at least several years ago they did. I don't know what they have now, but different organizations have decided this is the right way to go and they invest in it. I don't know. I think it might be an insurance company that supports a mobile clinic. And they're actually the people who should be supporting mobile clinics because mobile clinics actually help save money. And the people not who surprised. Yeah, beautiful. Of, the, of that savings is okay. the insurance company. If coming to a mobile clinic, your diabetes is managed better than it would be if the mobile clinic wasn't there, then you're going to be a less expensive patient because you're going to be healthier. As I said, you start building out from where you are, build your team and make it happen. Dr. Nancy, your passion really shines through and I'm so excited. I never thought about mobile clinics as like a response in the case of like an emergency that we're in right now. And um, I'm really thankful for your knowledge and and the passion with which you deliver it, right? So um, in closing, do you have any final thoughts or resources that you want to share with folks, either to get in touch with you and your work, or if there are any resources online where people can can draw from to begin a mobile clinic, right? Which is the advocacy that you suggest for tending to our own. So um, the family van itself is uh, familyvan, all one word, dot org. The collective collaborative research group of mobile clinics that the family van pulled together is mobilehealthmap.org. 
And the trade organization, which is the, our partner in making this happen, is mobilehealthcareassociation.org. Mobile clinics are part of the solution, but if there are 2,000 mobile clinics and we believe the 2,000 mobile clinics see sort of 3,000 people a year on average, that's 6 million people. That's not insignificant. But again, being an anesthesiologist who works in a hospital and seeing the role of hospitals and clinics and nurses in this moment, I mean, there's just so much to be done and there's so many people to help make it happen. Dr. Nancy Oriel, it was wonderful to talk with you today. And uh, we'll add our resources on our website right after the show today. So anybody who may feel activated or inspired, you'll have them as soon as possible. Dr. Nancy, thank you for having you. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. I totally enjoyed this. And you, you got me thinking about things I certainly didn't expect to think about when I woke up this morning. Fresh and innovative. (laughs) That's our style. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.